If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd invite you to open them to the epistle of 1 Peter. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. And as you're turning there, um, while you're turning there, the Bible says watch and pray, so you don't have to close your eyes, but uh, when you get there, pray with me for just a moment, if you would, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are and your greatness and goodness. We thank you that you're high and holy and lifted up. Your glory fills the tabernacle. Father, even now we sense the praise of the multitudes of angels around you. We just join them in a great cacophony of wonder and awe as we seek, Father, to see you and catch but just a glimpse of your glory. And Father, we would be undone should you reveal it fully to us. But we praise you for all that you are. Lord, we thank you for pouring out your blood for us, for condescending to a sinful, to an unrighteous and undeserving mankind that you redeemed so wonderfully. So we thank you, Father, for that. Lord, I ask that you would bless the preaching of your word, that, Father, you would help, uh, help me to depend on you. Father, that you would give me concision of speech, clarity of mind, and a consuming passion for Christ as we share your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you were with us last week, you know we uh, attempted to get through chapter 2, verse 10, and I think we got as far as verse 3, which is not unusual, so I do not know if we'll get through the entire rest of this passage. I would like to cover 4 through 10 today because it's really one stream of thought that Peter begins to pour out. As we begin this, I want to keep, keep a couple of things in mind, and if you don't remember anything else from today's sermon, I hope you'll remember this, and that is that the best commentary on Scripture is the rest of Scripture. And so when in the New Testament they bring into it Old Testament passages, you can rest assured because we believe, we teach, and we hold to a high view of Scripture, including the inspired and errant Word of God. So you can be sure that if the New Testament itself interprets an Old Testament verse a particular way, that is the correct way to interpret it. And so you don't have to worry about, well, are we just kind of laying a, a New Testament overlay on top of the Old Testament, picking and choosing. If God, by His inspiration, leads the writers of the New Testament to take a verse out of the Old Testament and apply it in a way that it wasn't originally applied, it is still valid because God is inspiring these men to do that and fully explain how, when, and where the Old Testament was always pointing to the Christ. Because it is all about Jesus. And so we're, we're going to see Peter doing this. And the reason I say all this is because we're going to see Peter doing this several times between verse 4 and verse 10. I think he pulls about eight or nine different verses from the Old Testament. He pulls from Isaiah. He pulls from the Psalms. He pulls from Deuteronomy. He pulls from Exodus. And he takes those passages in various places and he applies them to Christ in a different kind of way. But you can rest assured that is how those passages should be accurately interpreted. The second thing I, I want us to keep in mind as we go through this is it is of particular importance that it is Peter that says all of this. 
And the reason it's particularly important that Peter says all this, and almost ironic that it is Peter and not Paul or another writer that says what he says about Christ being the cornerstone, is that it is Peter who made the great confession. You recall the scene, and it's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Matthew gives us a more extensive view of what Jesus' response was, because only in Matthew does he go on to say that I will build my church upon this rock, but he goes on to say, and I'll give you the keys to the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and so forth. But they tell us that Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Who do the multitudes say that I am? And they say, well, some say Elijah, some say you're a prophet. And Jesus said to, to the disciples, who do you say that I am? And it is Peter who answered, thou art the son, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, for it is not man who revealed this to you, but the spirit of God. And he says, you are Peter, which in uh, that Language means rock. And he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. And so, looking back on that passage, and because of the way things played out historically, the Roman Catholic Church has looked at that as Christ saying to Peter, I am going to build my church on you. You are Peter, which means rock. And Jesus says that upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. So they look back on that, and then they claim Peter as the first pope. That gives the church a certain sense of authority, particularly if you look in Matthew where it says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and you have the keys to the kingdom. In other words, the church says for itself or claims for itself to have the keys to salvation. And so therefore, salvation is impossible outside of the church. And so we come to a place where we have to say, is that what Jesus said when he said, upon this rock I will build my church? Is he saying, I'm going to build my church upon the rock of Peter, or I'm going to build my church on the rock and truth of what he has just said, which is, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. So it is important that it is Peter that takes a passage that should ring a bell to you, and that is this whole idea of, of upon building on the cornerstone. In Peter's great confession, in Jesus' response, he talks about building the church on the rock. And so it is Peter who points the finger not at himself, but intentionally, I think, points the finger and fully explains here what the great confession was all about. And so if you consider that it is Peter who is saying that Jesus is the cornerstone, not me. Jesus and the truth of who He is is the cornerstone. The whole church is built upon Him. Your salvation is built upon Him. It's not built on me. And so it's Peter trying to take, if you can believe it, because Peter was, was well, he, he, uh, he was pretty gregarious, and he always had a lot to say, and usually he was very self-asserting. But at this point, he, he's... he's learn some humility, and he's taking himself out of the limelight saying, it is not built on me, it is built on Christ. And so let me fully explain what is meant when we say Jesus is the cornerstone. You think that's not important? I would refer you to your history books regarding one theologian named John Huss. John Huss in 1415 was burned at the stake because he dared to say that the leader of the church is Jesus Christ, not the Pope. 
Now, he wrote a lot of other theology going along with that, but he was called to Rome to defend his position and uh, talk about this. And upon his uh, presence, he was immediately arrested, thrown into prison, and shortly thereafter, he was executed. Why? Because he said that Jesus was the head of the church, not the Pope. Well, they trace that back to Peter and Peter's great confession. But Peter says, look, it's not built on the Pope. It's not, he wouldn't even know the word Pope really, but it's not built on himself. It is built on Christ. And so let's read chapter 2, verse 4, following. And coming to him as a living stone, rejected by men, but choice. I love that word. He is choice. And precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for the holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I love that short passage where he said that uh, it is the living stone rejected by men, but, and we're going to see throughout this passage, never has such a small word made such a huge eternal difference. And he's going to talk about that the stone was rejected by men, but precious to God. He's going to say that there are those who believe, but those who disbelieve. And there are those who are righteous and saved, but there are those who are condemned. And never has such a small word made an eternal difference as it does right here. Because you are either in Christ or not. And so you either believe and you're destined for glory or, but there are those who disbelieve destined for wrath. And this is the message you don't hear too much in popular, uh, popular culture, certainly, you don't hear it a whole lot in churches that are, that are trying to be more seeker-friendly, but I want to inform you of the single most insurmountable problem you have as a human being. God. What? Oh, God is love. God is holy. You are not. That's a problem. That is the single most seemingly insurmountable problem a human being has is that we worship, we are created by a holy God, and yet we are not holy. And apart from the righteousness of Christ, our own righteousness is as filthy rags. So here's the problem. God is holy, you're not. So I, I, I thought, you know, God said, well, He does. He provides the solution to the problem. I was having lunch one time with a, a friend of mine. I've gone on to call uh, Pagan Bob, and we were having lunch one day, and uh, he said to me, I just don't believe a loving God would send anyone to hell. And I said, Bob, I don't believe that either. Here's the problem. People are going to hell already because we were born unrighteousness or unrighteous. So I just don't believe you know, God would do that. And then you know what I did? I, I, I felt within me this compulsion I felt within me this, this, this spirit saying, tell him that I have done everything to prevent him going to hell. I have paid the price. I have sent the Christ. I have laid down my life. I have poured out my blood. I have done everything to prevent it. And, and he's accusing me of allowing it or causing it when I'm trying to prevent it. Tell him the gospel. Tell him about the salvation that is available, that he has made available through his own sacrifice. Tell 
him that my own glory is satisfied, my own holiness is satisfied by the righteousness of the sacrifice that I gave. Tell him. You know what I did? I changed the subject. You ever fumble? I mean, just blow it. Just miss an opportunity where you knew, you knew in that moment, the Holy Spirit was urging you to speak the truth. And you just don't. God has done everything necessary to prevent people from going to a hell. They're already on the way to, which is a bad sentence, but a spiritual truth. We need to tell the world, not that God is sending you to hell, but you know, you're on your way. And He has done everything to stop it necessary. He gave of Himself. that's been rejected by men. Sometimes as Christians even, we, we think of lost as sort of happenstantially lost. Now, I, I granted that theologically we are all born unrighteousness. I mean, you were lost from the fact that you were born because you were born unrighteous. Now, sometimes we, we take that fact and we just push it so far that we, we say, well, yeah, people can't help it. People can't help the way they act. But, you know, when Peter gets to talking about this, we're going to see he uses verbs. He doesn't say that uh, they, they just happen not to believe. He says they disbelieve. In other words, they make a conscious decision to not believe, to disbelieve. But you have chosen to believe. We act like, well, I can't help what I believe. Yes, you can. There are things that, here's the problem. In our scientific uh, society we live in, where we can explain almost everything, and if you can't really explain it, just dump it in the whole the sort of category of quantum physics, because that allows for anything, right? Multidimensional and all that. You know, if it gets really weird, just dump it in quantum physics and say, it's all explained. Look, math solves everything. And so we equate belief with understanding. And people say, well, I just can't believe this and I can't believe that. Belief is a choice. So I say this, I believe that Christ rose from the dead. I do not understand how. I do not understand the physical mechanics, the science of how Christ was able not only to lay down his life, to pick it up again. That's astounding. How can he pick up his own life again once you're dead? I do not understand. I don't know, but I believe. Okay? I believe God created the world. I don't know how. I mean, I don't fathom how just by speaking and willing something into be that it can come from nothingness and be there because God can do that and only God can do that. I don't understand how, but I believe. So don't equate belief and commitment with full understanding. And knowledge because there are things about God you will never understand and I would be saddened were it otherwise I think Spurgeon is the one that said we can never become so arrogant that we refuse to leave unto God 
things that we can't possibly understand. And we'll get to some of those in a moment, perhaps. Where were we? And coming to him as a living stone. I'm so sorry. Um, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. That's Jesus. It's interesting that he calls him a living stone. I don't know if you thought about it. I mean, people used to have pet rocks, right? That was the thing a lot. But here's the thing. Um, I, I, the, the rock was never alive. I mean, that's the great irony, right? When he, in the triumphal entry, when, when the Pharisees say, tell your disciples to be quiet. And Jesus says, I tell you, if they don't praise me, the rocks themselves will cry out. Well, the great irony of that is the ridiculous nature of the statement. Rocks don't live. Rocks don't have breath. They can't possibly cry out. Oh, possibly they can. If God wills it to be so. So he calls him the living stone. He could have used other analogies, right? Because we understand that the building analogy here is exactly that. It, it's an analogous statement. I mean, Jesus is not a rock. Okay? But he is the rock. And so Peter says it's a living stone rejected by men, choice and precious in the sight of God. Now, like verse 5, you also... Jesus is what? The living stone. You are living stones. In other words, you are going to be put in the building as well. And of course, when he talks about the building, he's going back to this idea of building his church, building his people. He says, you are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood and offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, he said a whole lot there. Your living stones built up as a house. What's the house? It's an analogy for God's people, the church. And here's the thing I want us to understand this morning. You and I are living stones part of the same house. That has some implications. I mean, what if I went to a builder and I said, I want you to build me a, a, a brick house or a stone house. I want you to take these stones and build me a house. And he said, well, fine, I, I can do that. Here's what it'll cost you. And I said, but here's the thing. I don't want the stones to touch each other. I don't want to get too, don't want them rubbing up against each other. I, I don't want these stones too close. Well, how, how do you accomplish that? Well, I don't know, leave some, leave some personal space for, you know, just leave some space. Well, it won't stand. Here's the thing. You are a living stone being built up in Christ, in the body of Christ, and there are other living stones around you, and you're going to rub up against some of them. That's just the nature of family. That's just the nature of being built up as living stones. You're a part of a larger thing. You're a part of the larger church. You're part of the body of Christ. You're going to bump up some, get some other stones. And sometimes those stones uh, are not going to be as agreeable with you as you might like them to be. And what we have to do is deal with it. Or... Be like the Old Testament says that iron sharpens iron. And sometimes when you bump up against other stones in the building, it just shapes you into what God wants you to be. 
So Peter's talking about this whole thing, as you recall. He's talking about unity and loving one another, and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And then he talks about we are all living stones being built up as a spiritual house for what? A holy priesthood. Now understand to whom Peter is writing. We talked about this. I don't remember when. Weeks and weeks and weeks ago when we, we introduced the book, right? Because it's written to certain people. Particularly people who are probably part of the diaspora who are Jewish people. So they understand the idea of priesthood. What's the purpose of the priest? He goes into the temple. He makes sacrifices on behalf of the people. In fact, once a year he goes into the Holy of Holies. In the very presence of God. And he sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat. Right? And for the sins of the people. Now it is so reverent. And so awe-inspiring that it transcends that into the, the terrifying for the priests. Because if the priest went into the Holy of Holies, in the very presence of God, with sin, then he could be possibly struck dead. And so they would literally put bells on the priest's robe. And a, and, a, and a rope. And if they don't hear the bells moving around, or it sounds like maybe the bells just all fell, then they would drag him out dead. When he went into that place, it was to make sacrifice for their sins. And so what comes to their mind when he says, you are living stones and you are being built as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, he's not talking about the priest, he's talking about you. And these people would have said, hey, because uh, they wouldn't have probably read this for themselves, it would have been read to the church uh, in its entirety, by the way. Um, some of them might have said, well, uh, brother, could you back up just one sentence? Did he just say that you and I are priests? Did he just say that you and I can approach the very presence of God without an intermediary? Did he just say that I don't need the priest to go into the Holy of Holies and make sacrifice for my sin? Did he just say I have access to a holy God? Yes, he did. And you don't need a priest, and you don't need a pope, and you don't need me, and you don't need your neighbor. All you need is Christ. And if you are in Christ, you can go before holy God. And so well, I thought if I went with sin, I would be struck dead. And I know I have a lot of sin. Here's what the Bible says in Jude. He causes us, He makes us to stand holy and blameless before God. How? Because we are in Christ. We're in Christ. So we are holy. You ever thought about? Are you holy this morning? Some of you are saying, "No, no, I'm a Baptist." And as all good Baptists know, I'm just an old sinner saved by. I say, I knew you knew that. I'm just an old sinner saved by grace. No, you are not. You are not an old sinner. You were a sinner. Now you are a holy priest. <laughs> you have access to the almighty creator who made you and everything around you. You have access to the throne of grace through Christ. And you are a holy people. You're a holy priesthood. This is one of the reasons, not the only, but... One of the reasons that I am not called priest. Because we affirm in Baptist life 
the Protestant life, what they call the priesthood of every believer. I'm not a priest separated somehow or better than you or closer to God than you. You are a priest. And the only person, the only mediary you need to have audience with the Creator is Jesus. And we have that through our salvation in Him. Built up as a spiritual house. For what? We're, we're holy priesthood. For the offering of spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And here's how you know he's going back to this idea of the priests in the temple. Because he's going to be talking about sacrifices. And he says, it's not animal sacrifices, it's what? Spiritual sacrifices. Here's the kicker for me anyway. Acceptable to God. Acceptable to God. Are you acceptable? Some of the people will complain or say, I don't feel accepted. When I look at my life and I know the darkness of my own heart, I'm not acceptable. This is not acceptable. Did you ever say that to your children as a parent? This behavior is not acceptable. What do we mean by it? I, I, it's not acceptable. It won't do. Not good enough. Whatever, whatever term you want to put on it. Here's the thing. We come before God with all our baggage. And if we are not careful, even as redeemed people, we come to God with this attitude, I'm not acceptable. I'm not good enough. No, you're not. But Christ is. And you are in Him. So we stand before God blameless and we approach the throne of grace boldly. We're rushing headlong into the presence of a holy God. You bet in Jesus. Dare not in your own righteousness. What is it Moses asked? Lord, let me see your glory. You know, God sort of shows it. There, there, there's a, uh, I've been writing a lot of, watching a lot of YouTube videos. I learn everything on YouTube. Anyway, uh, YouTube videos and taking some writing classes. And they always say, show, don't tell. So God does that with Moses. He doesn't tell Moses, you can't handle my glory. He doesn't tell Moses, if you were to see my glory in its fullness, you would be struck dead. He doesn't tell him that, but he shows him that. You remember how? He said, I'm going to hide you in a rock. Okay? And as I walk by, after I'm gone, you can see the trail. Now, the Bible says he sees the, the, the backside of God. The, the inference is really this. He just sees the trail. And here's the thing. We walk in the wake of His glory. You cannot bear the actual presence of His glory, but we are allowed sometimes to see the wake as it rolls from Him. And so Moses was allowed to see the glory of God sort of after God had walked by. Can you imagine that moment when the, when the pebbles start trembling? And then the big rocks start shaking. And then the boulders that God has put you behind act as though they might fall on you. And the whole earth seems to tremble at the footsteps of the Holy God. And in that moment, in all His austerity, in all His awesomeness, in all His power, He proclaims something of Himself. You know what He says? I am. 
I am loving and kind and full of grace and mercy. In that moment, he could have said anything. He could have said, I am God, the creator. You will worship me or the earth itself will tremble. I am God and I demand this and I demand that. He could have said anything and he would have had the right to say anything because who else has that kind of glory and that kind of presence? And what does he say of himself? Look at how amazing I am. I am loving. I'm full of mercy and long-suffering. What an amazing thing. He is loving. So we offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. You know what spiritual sacrifice is? I've sort of been there, not to the degree some of you have. Some of you in this room have lost a spouse, a child. Some of you know the kind of grief and anguish only a parent can know. Some of you know the grief and the lost feeling and the lostness when suddenly the person you've been with for 40 years or 50 years is no more. And yet, in the midst of that loss and grief, and sometimes literally with tears, you sing, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's a spiritual sacrifice. His worship, His praise, when we lift Him up and give Him the deserved glory, even in the midst of our loss and grief and heartache, that's a spiritual sacrifice. When we commit ourselves anew to serve Him, that's a spiritual sacrifice. Some of you have had to say, Lord, I know You've given me these children and You're calling them to a place far away, a place of danger, a place I won't be able to see them and embrace them and, and talk to them every day. But you know what? I commit them to You. That's a spiritual sacrifice. Like I said, I, I, I have not had the pain of, of losing a spouse or a child, but, but I have known, for me, because I'm, you know, I'm just a cinnamon sap, I, I, I've known the agony of watching my son and consequently my best friend drive down the street and turn and the car disappears as, as they go off where God's called them, to Louisville. And yes, I went inside and cried like a baby. But I prayed, God, this is where you've called them. You are good. You are holy. And I worship God, though my heart was broken. That's a spiritual sacrifice. God said, or Peter says, acceptable to God. How? Through Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to begin full passages from the Old Testament. My intention was to get through verse 10, but uh, candidly, I forgot my timer. I usually have a timer sitting here, and I have no idea. Where are we? Our time's about up. Yes. Our time is about up. 
Well, Lucia brought snacks. So let's move on. Uh, one of these days, I'm seriously going to have on Snickers and say not going anywhere for a while. Um, but anyway, I, I sense that our, that our time today is up, and I appreciate your patience and your attentiveness. I pray that God has been lifted up and the gospel has been presented because despite everything you might be experiencing in life, God is good and God is holy. And my challenge to you this week, as you go through your week, if, you're, you know, if your life is like mine, and I suspect it is, you're going to have moments where you're going to be disappointed you're going to have moments where you're very concerned. You're going to have moments where you're frustrated. You're going to have moments where you get angry. You're going to have moments that the world is going to begin to press in on you. And you're going to feel those effects. And my challenge to you is to whisper to yourself, or perhaps if you're like me, say out loud, if you're driving down the road, just say out loud, God, you are good. Whatever's happening right now, Lord, it does not change the character and wonder of who you are. You are not diminished. Your holiness has come down a notch because I'm having problems. And here's the point. Our experience in this life does not affect the holiness of God. It does not diminish Him in the slightest because I suffer. The fact may well be for His glory. So what have you go through this week? God is good. I saw a post on FB. Right? I'm hip. I'm hip and relevant. Um, on FB, by a friend, a friend I knew in St. Louis, went to church with, and she said this. She talked about a day she had had at a Cardinals game. By the way, great, good job. Uh, and, and then they went and had a barbecue and all these wonderful things happened with the family. She put that list on there and said, God is good. And you know what? He is. And I was thankful with her. I rejoiced with her that she had a blessed day. But what about the person that went to the doctor today and the news was terrible? Went to the doctor today and he came out with that look on his face that only doctors can have. And you know it's going to be bad news. And he said the C word. I went to the doctor today and this test didn't look good. I went home today and had a big fight with my wife. Or maybe you had, you know, some words exchanged on the way to church this morning. I'm not, I'm not pointing any, I'm not saying any names. But anyway, um, maybe things aren't blessed all day long. Can you listen to the doctor say, this is, going, this is what's happening to you. This is, what, this is what might happen. And it all sounds horrifying and terrible. In that moment, is God good? Would you put that on Facebook? Went to the doctor today, have more problems than I can deal with. God is good. That's a spiritual sacrifice. So do you understand what the sacrifice is? It's you. It's me. That's the spiritual sacrifice. It's you and me. Lay it on the altar. You try too hard to hold on to this life, you will certainly lose it. We are holding so tightly to things here that we were never meant to keep forever. The fact is, you're not staying here. God is good. He is holy. Let's go to Him in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You. If you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to open them to the epistle of 1 Peter. 
We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. And as you're turning there, um, while you're turning there, the Bible says watch and pray, so you don't have to close your eyes, but uh, when you get there, pray with me for just a moment, if you would, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are and your greatness and goodness. We thank you that you're high and holy and lifted up. Your glory fills the tabernacle. Father, even now we sense the praise of the multitudes of angels around you. We just join them in a great cacophony of wonder and awe as we seek, Father, to see you and catch but just a glimpse of your glory. And Father, we would be undone should you reveal it fully to us, but we praise you for all that you are. Lord, we thank you for pouring out your blood for us, for condescending to a sinful, to an unrighteous and undeserving mankind that you redeemed so wonderfully. So we thank you, Father, for that. Lord, I ask that you would grant, uh, bless the preaching of your word, that, Father, you would help, uh, help me to depend on you. Father, that you would give me concision of speech, clarity of mind, and a consuming passion for Christ as we share your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you were with us last week, you know we uh, attempted to get through chapter 2, verse 10, and I think we got as far as verse 3, which is not unusual, so I do not know if we'll get through the entire rest of this passage. I would like to cover 4 through 10 today because it's really one stream of thought that Peter begins to pour out. As we begin this, I want to keep, keep a couple of things in mind, and if you don't remember anything else from today's sermon, I hope you'll remember this, and that is that the best commentary on Scripture is the rest of Scripture. And so when in the New Testament they bring into it Old Testament passages, you can rest assured because we believe, we teach, and we hold to a high view of Scripture, including the inspired and errant Word of God. So you can be sure that if the New Testament itself interprets an Old Testament verse a particular way, that is the correct way to interpret it. And so you don't have to worry about, well, are we just kind of laying a, a New Testament overlay on top of the Old Testament, picking and choosing. If God, by His inspiration, leads the writers of the New Testament to take a verse out of the Old Testament and apply it in a way that it wasn't originally applied, it is still valid because God is inspiring these men to do that and fully explain how, when, and where the Old Testament was always pointing to the Christ. Because it is all about Jesus. And so we're, we're going to see Peter doing this. And the reason I say all this is because we're going to see Peter doing this several times between verse 4 and verse 10. I think he pulls about eight or nine different verses from the Old Testament. He pulls from Isaiah. He pulls from the Psalms. He pulls from Deuteronomy. He pulls from Exodus. And he takes those passages in various places and he applies them to Christ in a different kind of way. But you can rest assured that is how those passages should be accurately interpreted. The second thing I, I want us to keep in mind as we go through this is it is of particular importance that it is Peter that says all of this. And the reason it's particularly important that Peter says all this and almost ironic that it is Peter and not Paul or another writer that says what he says about Christ being the cornerstone is that it is Peter who made the great confession. 
You recall the scene that's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Matthew gives us a more extensive view of what Jesus' response was because only in Matthew does he go on to say that I will build my church upon this rock, but he goes on to say, and I'll give you the keys to the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and so forth. But they tell us that Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Who the multitudes say that I am? And they said, well, some say Elijah, some say you're a prophet. And Jesus said to, to the disciples, who do you say that I am? And it is Peter who answered, thou art the son, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, for it is not man who revealed this to you, but the spirit of God. And he says, you are Peter, which in uh, that Language means rock. And he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. And so, looking back on that passage, and because of the way things played out historically, the Roman Catholic Church has looked at that as Christ saying to Peter, I am going to build my church on you. You are Peter, which means rock. And Jesus says that upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. So they look back on that, and then they claim Peter as the first pope. That gives the church a certain sense of authority, particularly if you look in Matthew where it says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and you have the keys to the kingdom. In other words, the church says for itself or claims for itself to have the keys to salvation. And so therefore, salvation is impossible outside of the church. And so we come to a place where we have to say, is that what Jesus said when he said, upon this rock I will build my church? Is he saying, I'm going to build my church upon the rock of Peter, or I'm going to build my church on the rock and truth of what he has just said, which is, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. So it is important that it is Peter that takes a passage that should ring a bell to you, and that is this whole idea of, of upon building on the cornerstone. In Peter's great confession, in Jesus' response, he talks about building the church on the rock. And so it is Peter who points the finger not at himself, but intentionally, I think, points the finger and fully explains here what the great confession was all about. And so if you consider that it is Peter who is saying that Jesus is the cornerstone, not me. Jesus and the truth of who He is is the cornerstone. The whole church is built upon Him. Your salvation is built upon Him. It's not built on me. And so it's Peter trying to take, if you can believe it, because Peter was, was well, he, he, uh, he was pretty Gregorious, and he always had a lot to say, and usually he was very self-asserting. But at this point, he, he's... he's learn some humility, and he's taking himself out of the limelight saying, it is not built on me, it is built on Christ. And so let me fully explain what is meant when we say Jesus is the cornerstone. You think that's not important? I would refer you to your history books regarding one theologian named John Huss. John Huss in 1415 was burned at the stake because he dared to say that the leader of the church is Jesus Christ, not the Pope. Now he wrote a lot of other theology going along with that, but he was called to Rome to defend his position and uh, talk about this. And upon his uh, presence, he was immediately arrested, thrown into prison, and shortly thereafter, he was executed. Why? Because he said 
that Jesus was the head of the church, not the Pope. Well, they trace that back to Peter and Peter's great confession. But Peter says, look, it's not built on the Pope. It's not, he wouldn't even know the word Pope really, but it's not built on himself. It is built on Christ. And so let's read chapter 2, verse 4, following. And coming to him as a living stone, rejected by men, but choice. I love that word. He is choice. And precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for the holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I love that short passage where he said that uh, it is the living stone rejected by men, but, and we're going to see throughout this passage, never has such a small word made such a huge eternal difference. And he's going to talk about that the stone was rejected by men, but precious to God. He's going to say that there are those who believe, but those who disbelieve. And there are those who are righteous and saved, but there are those who are condemned. And never has such a small word made an eternal difference as it does right here. Because you are either in Christ or not. And so you either believe and you're destined for glory or, but there are those who disbelieve destined for wrath. And this is the message you don't hear too much in popular, uh, popular culture. Certainly you don't hear it a whole lot in churches that are, that are trying to be more seeker friendly. But I want to inform you of the single most insurmountable problem you have as a human being. God. What? Oh, God is love. God is holy. You are not. That's a problem. That is the single most seemingly insurmountable problem a human being has is that we worship, we are created by a holy God, and yet we are not holy. And apart from the righteousness of Christ, our own righteousness is as filthy rags. So here's the problem. God is holy, you're not. So I, 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 I thought, you know, God said, well, He does. He provides the solution to the problem. I was having lunch one time with a, a friend of mine I've gone on to call uh, Pagan Bob, and we were having lunch one day, and uh, he said to me, I just don't believe a loving God would send anyone to hell. And I said, Bob, I don't believe that either. Here's the problem. People are going to hell already because we were born unrighteousness or unrighteous. So I just don't believe, you know, God would do that. And then, you know what I did? I, I, I felt within me this compulsion I felt within me this, this, this spirit saying, tell him that I have done everything to prevent him going to hell. I have paid the price. I have sent the Christ. I have laid down my life. I have poured out my blood. I have done everything to prevent it. And, and he's accusing me of allowing it or causing it when I'm trying to prevent it. Tell him the gospel. Tell him about the salvation that is available, that he has made available through his own sacrifice. Tell him him that my own glory is satisfied, my own holiness is satisfied by the righteousness of the sacrifice that I gave. Tell him! You know what I did? 
I change the subject. You ever fumble? I mean, just blow it. Just miss an opportunity where you knew, you knew in that moment the Holy Spirit was urging you to speak the truth. And you just don't. God has done everything necessary to prevent people from going to a hell. They're already on the way to, which is a bad sentence, but a spiritual truth. We need to tell the world, not that God is sending you to hell, but you know, you're on your way. And He has done everything to stop it necessary. He gave of Himself. But that's been rejected by men. Sometimes, as Christians, even, we, we think of lost as sort of happenstantially lost. Now, I, I granted that theologically we are all born unrighteousness. I mean, you were lost from the fact that you were born. Because you were born unrighteous. Now, sometimes we, we take that fact and we just push it so far that we, we say, well, yeah, people can't help it. People can't help the way they act. But, you know, when Peter gets to talking about this, we're going to see he uses verbs. He doesn't say that uh, they, they just happen not to believe. He says they disbelieve. In other words, they make a conscious decision to not believe, to disbelieve. But you have chosen to believe. We act like, well, I can't help what I believe. Yes, you can. There are things that, here's the problem. In our scientific uh, society we live in, where we can explain almost everything, and if you can't really explain it, just dump it in the whole the sort of category of quantum physics, because that allows for anything, right? Multidimensional and all that. You know, if it gets really weird, just dump it in quantum physics and say, it's all explained. Look, math solves everything. And so we equate belief with understanding. And people say, well, I just can't believe this and I can't believe that. Belief is a choice. So I say this, I believe that Christ rose from the dead. I do not understand how. I do not understand the physical mechanics, the science of how Christ was able not only to lay down his life, to pick it up again. That's astounding. How can he pick up his own life again once you're dead? I do not understand. I don't know, but I believe. Okay? I believe God created the world. I don't know how. I mean, I don't fathom how just by speaking and willing something into be that it can come from nothingness and be there because God can do that. Only God can do that. I don't understand how, but I believe. So don't equate belief and commitment with full understanding and knowledge because there are things about God you will never understand. And I would be saddened were it otherwise. I think Spurgeon is the one that said we can never become so arrogant that we refuse to leave unto God things that we can't possibly understand. And we'll get to some of those in a moment. Perhaps. Where were we? And coming to Him as this living stone. I'm so sorry. Um, coming to Him 
as to a living stone rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. That's Jesus. It's interesting that he calls him a living stone. I don't know if you thought about it. I mean, people used to have pet rocks, right? That was the thing a while. But here's the thing. Um, I, I, the, the rock was never alive. I mean, that's the great irony, right? When he, in the triumphal entry, when, when the Pharisees say, tell your disciples to be quiet. And Jesus says, I tell you, if they don't praise me, the rocks themselves will cry out. Well, the great irony of that is the ridiculous nature of the statement. Rocks don't live. Rocks don't have breath. They can't possibly cry out. Oh, possibly they can. If God wills it to be so. So he calls him the living stone. He could have used other analogies, right? Because we understand that the building analogy here is exactly that. It, it's an analogous statement. I mean, Jesus is not a rock. Okay? But he is the rock. And so Peter says it's a living stone rejected by men, choice and precious in the sight of God. Now, like verse 5, you also... Jesus is what? The living stone. You are living stones. In other words, you are going to be put in the building as well. And of course, when he talks about the building, he's going back to this idea of building his church, building his people. He says, you are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood and offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, he said a whole lot there. Your living stones built up as a house. It's the house. It's an analogy for God's people, the church. And here's the thing I want us to understand this morning. You and I are living stones, part of the same house. That has some implications. I mean, what if I went to a builder and I said, I want you to build me a, a, a brick house or a stone house. I want you to take these stones and build me a house. And he said, well, fine, I, I can do that. Here's what it'll cost you. And I said, but here's the thing. I don't want the stones to touch each other. I don't want to get too, don't want them rubbing up against each other. I, I don't want these stones too close. Well, how, how do you accomplish that? Well, I don't know, leave some, leave some personal space for, you know, just leave some space. Well, it won't stand. Here's the thing. You are a living stone being built up in Christ, in the body of Christ, and there are other living stones around you, and you're going to rub up against some of them. That's just the nature of family. That's just the nature of being built up as living stones. You're a part of a larger thing. You're a part of the larger church. You're part of the body of Christ. You're going to bump up some, get some other stones. And sometimes those stones uh, are not going to be as agreeable with you as you might like them to be. And what we have to do is deal with it. Or... Be like the Old Testament says that iron sharpens iron. And sometimes when you bump up against other stones in the building, it just shapes you into what God wants you to be. So Peter's talking about this whole thing, as you recall. He's talking about unity and loving one another, and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And then he talks about we are all living stones being built up as a spiritual house for what? A holy priesthood. Now understand to whom Peter is writing. We talked about this. 
I don't remember when. Weeks and weeks and weeks ago when we, we introduced the book, right? Because it's written to certain people. Particularly people who are probably part of the diaspora who are Jewish people. So they understand the idea of priesthood. What's the purpose of the priest? He goes into the temple. He makes sacrifices on behalf of the people. In fact, once a year, he goes into the Holy of Holies in the very presence of God and he sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat, right? And for the sins of the people. Now, it is so reverent and so awe-inspiring that it transcends that into the, the terrifying for the priests. Because if the priest went into the Holy of Holies in the very presence of God with sin, then he could be possibly struck dead. And so they would literally put bells on the priest's robe and a, and, a, and a rope. And if they don't hear the bells moving around, or it sounds like maybe the bells just all fell, then they would drag him out dead. When he went into that place, it was to make sacrifice for their sins. And so what comes to their mind when he says, you are living stones and you're being built as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. He's not talking about the priest. He's talking about you. And these people would have said, hey, because uh, they wouldn't have probably read this for themselves. It would have been read to the church uh, in its entirety, by the way. Um, some of them might have said, well, uh, brother, could you back up just one sentence? Did he just say that you and I are priests? Did he just say that you and I can approach the very presence of God without an intermediary? Did he just say that I don't need the priest to go into the Holy of Holies and make sacrifice for my sin? Did he just say I have access to a holy God? Yes, he did. And you don't need a priest, and you don't need a pope, and you don't need me, and you don't need your neighbor. All you need is Christ. And if you are in Christ, you can go before holy God. And so I thought if I went with sin, I would be struck dead. And I know I have a lot of sin. Here's what the Bible says in Jude. He causes us, He makes us to stand holy and blameless before God. How? Because we are in Christ. We're in Christ. So we are holy. You ever thought about, are you holy this morning? Some of you are saying, no. No, I'm a Baptist. And as all good Baptists know, I'm just an old sinner saved by I See, I knew you knew that. I'm just an old sinner saved by grace. No, you are not. You are not an old sinner. You were a sinner. Now you are a holy priest. <laughs> you have access to the almighty creator who made you and everything around you. You have access to the throne of grace through Christ. And you are a holy people. You're a holy priesthood. This is one of the reasons, not the only, but... One of the reasons that I am not called priest. Because we affirm in Baptist life, Protestant life, what they call the priesthood of every believer. I'm not a priest separated somehow or better than you or closer to God than you. You are a priest. And the only person, the only mediary you need to have audience with the Creator is Jesus. We have that 
through our salvation in Him. Built up as a spiritual house. For what? We're, we're holy priesthood. For the offering of spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And here's how you know he's going back to this idea of the priests in the temple. Because he's going to be talking about sacrifices. And he says, it's not animal sacrifices, it's what? Spiritual sacrifices. Here's the kicker for me anyway. Acceptable to God. Acceptable to God. Are you acceptable? Some of the people will complain or say, I don't feel accepted. When I look at my life and I know the darkness of my own heart, I'm not acceptable. This is not acceptable. Did you ever say that to your children as a parent? This behavior is not acceptable. What do we mean by that? I, I, it's not acceptable. It won't do. Not good enough. Whatever, whatever term you want to put on it. Here's the thing. We come before God with all our baggage. And if we are not careful, even as redeemed people, we come to God with this attitude, I'm not acceptable. I'm not good enough. No, you're not. But Christ is. And you are in Him. So we stand before God blameless and we approach the throne of grace boldly. We're rushing headlong into the presence of a holy God? You bet in Jesus. Dare not in your own righteousness. What is it Moses asked? Lord, let me see your glory. You know, God sort of shows it. There, there, there's a, uh, I've been writing a lot of, watching a lot of YouTube videos. I learn everything on YouTube. Anyway, uh, YouTube videos and taking some writing classes. And they always say, show, don't tell. So God does that with Moses. He doesn't tell Moses, you can't handle my glory. He doesn't tell Moses, if you were to see my glory in its fullness, you would be struck dead. He doesn't tell him that, but he shows him that. You remember how? He said, I'm going to hide you in a rock. Okay? And as I walk by, after I'm gone, you can see the trail. Now, the Bible says he sees the, the, the backside of God. The, the inference is really this. He just sees the trail. And here's the thing. We walk in the wake of His glory. You cannot bear the actual presence of His glory, but we are allowed sometimes to see the wake as it rolls from Him. And so Moses was allowed to see the glory of God sort of after God had walked by. Can you imagine that moment when the, when the pebbles start trembling? And then the big rocks start shaking. And then the boulders that God has put you behind act as though they might fall on you. And the whole earth seems to tremble at the footsteps of the Holy God. And in that moment, in all His austerity, in all His awesomeness, in all His power, He proclaims something of Himself. And you know what He says? I am. I am loving and kind and full of grace and mercy. In that moment, he could have said anything. He could have said, I am God, the creator. You will worship me or the earth itself will tremble. 
I am God and I demand this and I demand that. He could have said anything and he would have had the right to say anything because who else has that kind of glory and that kind of presence? But what does he say of himself? Look at how amazing I am. I am loving. I'm full of mercy and long-suffering. What an amazing thing. He is loving so we offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. You know what spiritual sacrifice is? I've sort of been there, not to the degree some of you have. Some of you in this room have lost a spouse, a child. Some of you know the kind of grief and anguish only a parent can know. Some of you know the grief and the lost feeling and the lostness when suddenly the person you've been with for 40 years or 50 years is no more. And yet in the midst of that loss and grief and sometimes literally with tears, you sing, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's a spiritual sacrifice. His worship, His praise, when we lift Him up and give Him the deserved glory, even in the midst of our loss and grief and heartache, that's a spiritual sacrifice. When we commit ourselves anew to serve Him, that's a spiritual sacrifice. Some of you have had to say, Lord, I know You've given me these children and You're calling them to a place far away, a place of danger, a place I won't be able to see them and embrace them and, and talk to them every day. But you know what? I commit them to You. That's a spiritual sacrifice. Like I said, I, I, I have not had the pain of, of losing a spouse or a child, but, but I have known, for me, because I'm, you know, I'm just a cinnamon sap, I, I, I've known the agony of watching my son and consequently my best friend drive down the street and turn and the car disappears as they go off where God's called them, to Louisville. And yes, I went inside and cried like a baby. But I prayed, God, this is where you've called them. You are good. You are holy. And I worship God, though my heart was broken. That's a spiritual sacrifice. God said, or Peter says, acceptable to God. How? Through Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to begin full passages from the Old Testament. My intention was to get through verse 10, but uh, candidly, I forgot my timer. I usually have a timer sitting here, and I have no idea. Where are we? Our time's about up. Yes. Our time is about up. <laughs> well, Lucia brought snacks. So let's move on. Uh, <laughs> One of these days, I'm seriously going to have on Snickers and say, not going anywhere for a while. Um, but anyway, I, I sense that our, that our time today is up, and I appreciate your patience and your attentiveness. I pray that God has been lifted up.
and the gospel has been presented because despite everything you might be experiencing in life, God is good and God is holy. And my challenge to you this week, as you go through your week, if you're, you know, your life is like mine, and I suspect it is, you're going to have moments where you're going to be disappointed. You're going to have moments where you're very concerned. You're going to have moments where you're frustrated. You're going to have moments where you get angry. You're going to have moments that the world is going to begin to press in on you, and you're going to feel those effects. And my challenge to you is to whisper to yourself, or perhaps if you're like me, say out loud, if you're driving down the road, just say out loud, God, you are good. Whatever's happening right now, Lord, it does not change the character and wonder of who you are. You are not diminished. Your holiness has come down a notch because I'm having problems. And here's the point. Our experience in this life does not affect the holiness of God. It does not diminish Him in the slightest because I suffer. The fact may well be for His glory. So what have you go through this week? God is good. I saw a post on FB. Right? I'm hip. I'm hip and relevant. Um, on FB, by a friend, a friend I knew in St. Louis, went to church with, and she said this. She talked about a day she had had at a Cardinals game. By the way, Greg, good job. Uh, and, and then they went and had a barbecue and all these wonderful things happened with the family. She put that list on there and said, God is good. And you know what? He is. And I was thankful with her. I rejoiced with her that she had a blessed day. But what about the person that went to the doctor today and the news was terrible? Went to the doctor today and he came out with that look on his face that only doctors can have. And you know it's going to be bad news. And he said the C word. I went to the doctor today and this test didn't look good. I went home today and had a big fight with my wife. Or maybe you had, you know, some words exchanged on the way to church this morning. I'm not, I'm not pointing any, I'm not saying any names. But anyway, um, maybe things aren't blessed all day long. Can you listen to the doctor say, this is, going, this is what's happening to you. This is, what, this is what might happen. And it all sounds horrifying and terrible. In that moment, is God good? Would you put that on Facebook? Went to the doctor today, have more problems than I can deal with. God is good. That's a spiritual sacrifice. So do you understand what the sacrifice is? It's you. It's me. That's the spiritual sacrifice. It's you and me. Lay it on the altar. You try too hard to hold on to this life, you will certainly lose it. We are holding so tightly to things here that we were never meant to keep forever. The fact is, you're not staying here. God is good. He is holy. Let's go to Him in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You.